So we are returning to our series in Ecclesiastes today, and the sermon this morning is going to be a little bit unconventional. You might have noticed, if you got your message notes, that the title is Ecclesiastes, Assorted Wisdom. I probably shouldn't have a career in marketing. Um, it's kind of like saying, come to the movies, watch some characters, go through a series of events. It'll be fun. But the thing is, the second half of Ecclesiastes does offer us a lot of wisdom on a variety of topics. Uh, and it's kind of hard to discern a structure or an order to the presentation of that wisdom. I'm not saying there isn't one, but I have struggled to find it. I can't help but wonder if the teacher avoiding having an obvious structure to his writing because he was trying to remind us of one of his teachings, which is that life is not orderly and predictable. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes isn't orderly or predictable. So this is not going to be a traditional sermon where I pick a topic and then present a big idea on that topic. I'm just going to select some of my favorite gems of wisdom from Ecclesiastes. And it's going to be a little all over the place, just like life and just like Ecclesiastes. So, uh, but before we get into it, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us through this book. And I pray that uh, at least one of these topics would feel significant and relevant for everyone here. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through this wisdom and reveal to us how it applies to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first gem of assorted wisdom comes from chapter 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. So the topic here is nostalgia, right? Longing for the past longing for a time machine. Now, not everyone is prone to nostalgia. Some people look on the past with disdain, and that's not necessarily healthy either. But a lot of people feel this sentimental longing for the past. Some of us just, we love thinking about the past. It's like wrapping up in a warm security blanket. I have confessed this in a sermon before. Uh, I tend to be a very nostalgic person. In fact, you probably have a hard time finding someone more nostalgic than I am. I love revisiting stuff that I grew up with, especially the media that I grew up with, movies and TV shows, uh, commercials even. I know that's pathetic, but you know I have spent more time than I care to admit on a website called RetroJunk.com. So I feel this sentimental longing for the past, and the internet affords a lot of opportunities to indulge that, for better or for worse. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, I don't think the teacher is telling us that it's wrong to ever look fondly on the past or to visit retro junk, I hope. Uh, but we can get carried away with our nostalgia, and that can be unhealthy. Why is it unwise to ask the question, why were the old days better than these? There's wisdom in this for at least three reasons. First, 
The old days probably weren't as good as we remember. Those of us who are nostalgic have this tendency to romanticize the past. Our memory is distorted. Uh, our memory plays this trick on us where we remember the positive feelings and we filter out the bad. And the truth is, if we really could go back to the past, we would feel dissatisfaction there too. Here's an example from my own life. Sometimes when I walk into a home furnishing store, I get pangs of nostalgia. Because when I was a child, my brother and I had to spend a lot of weekend afternoons in home furnishing stores. Because my parents were always looking for some curtains or a recliner or fabric for the couch or something like that. And they were always very thorough in their decision making. That's always been true of them. So that meant a lot of time in these kinds of stores. And we were too young to be left alone. So Today, when I walk into a home furnishing store, it triggers these memories of passing the time with my brother and hiding under the beds and hiding in the cupboards and stuff like that. And I feel this fondness for that. I'm like, oh, that was sweet. You know, part of me has a, a little bit of a desire to go back to that. But you know what? When that was happening, I was bored out of my mind. The whole time I wanted to leave, I would look at the exit sign and the hallelujah chorus would play in my head. There was nothing I wanted more than to get out of there, and yet here I am 20-something years later, maybe 30-something years later, and when I walk into these stores, I feel this wistful longing for the past, ah, the good old days. So it's foolish to say, why were the old days better than this? Because memory is strange. It plays tricks on us. There's a good chance that if we went back to the past, we'd be just as dissatisfied as we are now, maybe even more so. Now, you might counter and say, oh, but Ryan, the past that I'm nostalgic for has nothing to do with being bored in home furnishing stores. You know, the old days really were better for me. Life was simpler. I had more money. I had more friends. I felt more secure. My health was better. You know, people were nicer, and society was more moral, and I'm not romanticizing anything. It's just a fact. Okay. Even if everything I just said is true, and that's a big if, but even if it's true, it's still not wise to dwell on it. Because here's the second reason. Longing for the past doesn't help us make the most of the present. Longing for the past doesn't help us make the most of the present. Regardless of how our past compares to our present, we have to remember that God is with us now. God has good things for us to do now. God has good things for us to enjoy and experience now. And if we just keep saying, oh, the old days, they were so much better than these, that doesn't help us to experience any of those things that God has for us now. If we want the present to be happy and productive. It's foolish to spend our time wishing we could be in the past. The past is the past, right? It's gone. It's not coming back. So the wise thing to do is to learn to appreciate the now. I have this theory that human beings in general are better at perceiving the presence of God when they look back than when they're in the present. And what we need to do is recognize that the presence of God is with us here and now. Receive the present as a gift, flaws and all, and make the most of it. 
And then lastly, a third reason why it is unwise to always wish that we could be in the past is because the present is often better than we realize. The present is often better than we realize. You know, some of us might feel like the present isn't so great, we wish we could be in the past, but if we're nostalgic, give us 10 to 20 years, and if we're still alive, we'll feel nostalgic for now. <laughs> it's funny the way that works. I remember that at the end of the TV show, The Office, uh, one of the characters, Andy Bernard, he said, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. And he said it with a little bit of a tear in his eye. And it's one of those moments that people remember. And of course, what he meant was, I wish I had been able to appreciate my present before it became my past. Right? I, I wish I had been able to enjoy what I had while I still had. And I think that what Andy wished for is something that's more possible than he realizes, right? Because we can choose to be grateful for what we have now, right? We can choose to focus on the beauty of the present. We can choose to recognize God's presence with us here and now. And we can choose not to keep saying over and over again, why were the old days better than these? Okay, so that's first first gem of wisdom. Let's move on to one of my other favorites. This is uh, verses 21 and 22 in chapter 7. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. I really like this one. Have you ever overheard someone saying something negative or critical about you? I think most of us have had that experience. Back in the teacher's day, you had to be within earshot of somebody to actually experience that. Now all you need is a Wi-Fi connection, right? Because people will say negative things all the time on social media. And when we hear those the criticisms and dehumanizing comments, it can be extraordinarily painful. And the teacher's advice to us is don't pay attention. Don't seek out what everybody is saying about you. And if you happen to overhear what people are saying about you and it's bad, don't give those words too much power. Don't pay attention to them. And the reason the teacher gives that we shouldn't pay attention is interesting. He says, because you know in your heart that you yourself have cursed others many times. Now, why is that a reason not to care? What the teacher is doing here is he's reminding us that we human beings tend to say a lot of negative, critical, nasty things about each other. He's not condoning that, but he wants us to recognize it. He wants us to acknowledge this. Thought experiment. Can you imagine what it would be like if suddenly everyone in the world became aware of what everyone else had said about them when, no one, when they weren't listening, when they weren't in the room. Like, if a printed report came to your mailbox and said, comments everyone has made about you, and it was, you know, they were, they were all quoted and dated, and it was broken up into sections, like, these are the negative ones. Can you imagine what that would be like? You know what I think would happen? I think we would all be doing damage control on our relationships, right? We would be frantically doing damage control and you know what I think the most common excuse would be that we would say to each other? 
I think the most common excuse would be, I, I didn't even really mean it. And in a lot of cases, I think that would be the honest truth. People say unkind things about each other for all kinds of reasons. You know, sometimes because we're having a bad day, because we feel insecure, because we're trying to be funny or fit in, maybe we want to sound tough, maybe we just feel like we have nothing else to say and we're trying to, you know, keep the conversation going. People say negative, critical things even about people they like, even about people that they enjoy being around and want to be in a relationship with. Now that's not right. We should be better than that. There's plenty of places in the Bible that call us to watch our words and be very careful about what we say. Nothing I'm saying right now is supposed to give us a pass with how we talk about other people, okay? But this is the unfortunate truth about the world that we live in, is that people are careless with their words. People say negative, terrible things, and it just rolls off their tongue, and it doesn't even mean anything to them sometimes when they say it. They just say it. So we shouldn't give these words too much power. That's what the teacher is saying. A few months ago, I saw this movie called Wonder. Has anyone seen this movie? It came out a year or two ago. I would highly recommend it. I think it's an excellent movie. It's the kind of movie that helps to generate empathy. Um, and it's about this 10-year-old boy named Augie. And Augie is a normal kid, except for one thing. He has a facial deformity. He was born with a facial deformity. He's had to have a lot of surgeries to uh, try and make his face look as, as normal as possible. And because of this, he has trouble making friends. But eventually, he ends up developing a friendship with this kid named Jack. They start eating lunch together. They start going over each other's houses. And this is great. This is what he's always longed for. He finally has a friend. And both Jack and Augie really enjoy being around each other. But one day, Augie overhears Jack talking to some other boys in the class. And they're talking about Augie. And, you know, he's trying to fit in with the tone of the conversation. So Jack says, if I looked like him, I'd kill myself. And then one of the boys asks, why do you hang out with him so much? And Jack answers, I don't know. He follows me around all the time. And Augie, of course, is devastated. Right? This is just a heart-wrenching scene. It's painful. Now, Jack doesn't know that Augie overheard him. So Jack says these words. He goes about his day. He forgets about them. And then he tries to spend time with Augie like normal. And... Augie gives him the silent treatment, understandably so. He doesn't want to talk to him. And Jack doesn't even understand, why won't Augie talk to, talk to me anymore? Why doesn't he want anything to do with me? And Jack is bummed because he really enjoyed his friendship with Augie. Now, I don't fault Augie for doing what he did, right? What Jack said was horrible. And no friend should talk like that about another friend. But as I watched the movie, I found myself thinking, I wish Augie knew how little those words meant to Jack. Jack didn't say those terrible things because he really believed them, right? He said them because he's an immature 10-year-old kid trying to fit out, trying to make himself feel secure, trying to make the other kids laugh. And he figured, well, Augie's not going to be hurt by what I'm saying because he's not here to hear it. 
And Jack was lying when he said that Augie just followed him around, right? He knew that their friendship was mutual. He knew that they both enjoyed spending time with each other. And I wanted Augie to be able to recognize all that. I mean, he had every right to be upset with Jack, but I wanted him to see that Jack's words did not deserve to have power over how he viewed himself, right? They weren't true words. They didn't even reflect honestly what Jack felt, right? They were just words that were born out of insecurity and immaturity and carelessness. And I wanted Augie to realize that because I thought if he could just realize that, then maybe these words wouldn't hurt quite as bad. And that's what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to do for us. He's trying to do for us what I wanted to do for Augie. He's trying to relieve us of some of the power that negative words can have when we overhear them. Uh, about ourselves. He's saying, in this world, people say negative things about each other. They do it all the time. You know that you've probably done it too, right? But often, they don't even really mean what they say. It's just words. It comes out of insecurity, immaturity, and carelessness. So don't pay attention. Don't give those words too much power. All right, I have one more gem of wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is verses 16 through 17. Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be overwicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Now that's an interesting one, isn't it? That's not something you expect to hear in the Bible. Don't be overrighteous. At first glance, it might sound like the teacher is encouraging us all to be lukewarm Christians, right? Don't be too righteous, don't be too wicked, shoot for that half-hearted middle ground of contentment in a reasonable amount of sin. Uh, I do not think that's what the teacher is telling us to do, okay? Uh, God calls all of us to wholeheartedly surrender our lives to him, uh, he calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him. There's nothing lukewarm about that, okay? Discipleship is costly. It's supposed to be wholehearted. So what is the teacher doing here? What the teacher is doing is he's warning us against two extremes, uh, neither of which is truly righteous. Overrighteous is really non-righteous. It's not true righteousness. It's a false righteousness. The overrighteous extreme is one that religious people have a tendency to fall into. And what it is, is it's an obsession with rules, right? All law, no grace. All letter, no spirit. I remember years ago when I worked for Crew, uh, I was helping to lead a mission trip once. And there was this one student who was new to the group, and I'm pretty sure he was new to the faith as well. And he was so critical. He always was finding something to be gravely concerned about. Um, and he kept complaining that our group wasn't spiritual enough. We never prayed enough. We never fasted enough. You know, we, were, we always should have been doing more, more, more. And those other groups that were there at the place, they were more spiritual. They were, they were better. And one thing that, that stands out to me the most, I remember overhearing him say that he felt like he could not trust the spiritual authority of one of the team leaders because he had been in this leader's car on the way to the airport and he had been speeding. 
He said, I was in the car, and I could see that he was going five, sometimes ten miles over the speed limit on the highway. And, you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to obey the law of the land. So, you know, I just don't think I can trust his leadership. That is what it looks like to be over-righteous, right? Fixated on rules, judging people based on rules. There's never any gray in any situation in your mind. Everything is black and white. That's false righteousness. That's not true righteousness. It's not really righteous because it has nothing to do with love, right? Nothing to do with the Spirit. And it's that kind of false righteous, righteousness that Jesus confronted in the Pharisees. He was always confronting the Pharisees' tendency to be over-righteous. Case in point, uh, the Pharisees were so fixated on rules that once... Uh, when Jesus healed a man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, the only thing they cared about is that he had carried his mat on the Sabbath when he got up. Right? Jesus said to this guy, 38 years he'd been lame, lying in the same place. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And they said, you can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath. Why did they say that? Well, because one of the rules that God had made is don't do work on the Sabbath. And then they said, well we're going to decide what work is. You know what work is? Carrying things. That's part of work. So if you carry your mat on the Sabbath, then you are breaking God's law, and that's all that matters. We can't even see this miracle or appreciate it because you broke a rule. That's being over-righteous. And you know what? Jesus hated that. <laughs> and I love it that Jesus told him to pick up his mat because you know what he was doing there? That was an act of protest. He didn't have to pick up his mat. Why did Jesus say, pick up your mat? Because he wanted to critique the religious establishment. He wanted them to realize that they are over-righteous, right? It was like he was saying, you break that rule. God didn't make that rule. Man made that rule. And you know what? We're going to demonstrate that today because the power of God is going to enable you to break that rule. That's really cool. Another quality of the over-righteous is that they assume that if something is fun or enjoyable, God must not like it, right? Uh, sports, worldly. Music with guitar and drums, mm, that's evil. Movies, they're all bad, right? And to that attitude, the teacher says, why destroy yourself? Don't be like that. Don't be over-righteous. With being over-righteous also often comes this quality of being over-wise. What does it mean to be over-wise? The over-wise person is the know-it-all, right? It's uh, the person who's absolutely certain of all their views, absolutely certain of all their interpretations of Scripture, uh, the kind of person who judges you harshly if you ever disagree with them, no matter what the issue, and then assumes, well, you must not really be a Christian if you disagree with me about this. And the teacher is saying, don't be that guy. Be humble. Be graceful. Don't be the know-it-all. But, and this is an important but, the teacher also warns us not to fall into the other extreme the over-wicked extreme. And this extreme is the, is the one that rejects wisdom entirely and abandons the idea of God's law and instead says, 
I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to worry about right and wrong and, you know, what God wants and what sin is. I'm just going to do my thing. And the teacher says, that's the way of the fool. That leads to destruction. I do not watch the TV show The Bachelorette, nor do I have any interest. Uh, but I heard that in a recent episode of The Bachelorette, she was confronted by one of her suitors about some of the choices she had made. And she responded, either on the show or in an interview later, by saying this. I think this is an exact quote. Regardless of anything that I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed, and if the Lord doesn't judge me, and it's all forgiven, then no other man, woman, anything can judge me. Now, I would present this statement as an example of the other extreme the teacher is talking about. Now, some of what this woman is saying is true. Okay? Um, Jesus does love her. No matter what, Jesus does love her. And if she really does have faith in Jesus, then her sins are forgiven. That's true. I also believe that nobody has a right to condemn her. Okay? But we sometimes mix up these words judging and condemnation and forget that there's some distinction there. Okay? Judging is not necessarily the same thing as uh, condemning. Um, judging is when we discern whether an action is good or bad. And all of us need to practice that discernment, right? We all need to. If somebody abuses a child, we should be able to say, I judge that to be wrong, right? We can all agree on that. Um, and, and in fact, this woman here is judging, right? Because she's judging that it's wrong for people to be judging her, and she's judging that people are judging her. It is a necessity of life to judge whether actions are right or wrong, okay? What Jesus forbids us from doing when he says, do not judge, is he forbids us from condemning. Condemning is when we say, this person is worthless. This person is unlovable. This person shouldn't have access to the grace of God. That's what we're forbidden from doing. But what concerns me most about this statement here is her declaration, I can do whatever. What she's saying is, my sin is irrelevant. Right? She's acknowledging her sin, and her response is that, to that is to say, it does not matter. It is irrelevant. I can do whatever I want. And here's the problem with that. She's right that Jesus loves her. But there's nothing in here that says, I love Jesus. Right? If we belong to Jesus, our sins are forgiven. But one of the signs that we belong to Jesus is that we love Jesus. And if we love Jesus, then our sin is going to concern us a little bit. Right? Because sin, by definition, is any action that Jesus doesn't approve of. It's an action that breaks the heart of God. Right? So we can't say, Jesus, I love you and belong to you, and at the same time say, I don't care about my sin. 
Those two things don't go together. How can you love someone if you don't care at all about what they want for you, about what they, they desire for your life, right? If we love Jesus, we're going to care about his will for our lives. Now, of course, are we going to follow it perfectly all the time? No, we are fallen, sinful human beings. We are going to make mistakes. People sin daily, and there is grace, and there is forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. But our sin is going to concern us. It's going to break our hearts a little. It's going to bother us. We're not just going to say, I can do whatever. Okay? That's not loving Jesus. That's not being a person of faith. And that's the way of the fool. That's the second extreme, that is being over-wicked. So, don't be over-righteous. Don't be over-wicked. Don't be a religious, legalistic, know-it-all. And don't be a anything-goes person who just does whatever they want and doesn't care about sin. Be truly righteous, right? Not obsessed with rules, led by the Spirit, embodying the life that Jesus lived, one of grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, and holiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The wisdom that it offers shows us where to step next along the journey of life. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to take these uh, three Proverbs and let them be a lamp unto our feet. Let them guide where we step next. In Jesus' name, amen.